I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, according to a new Ipsos poll, a majority of Canadians want a change in Ottawa. The U.S. House voted to condemn the tweets of U.S. President Donald Trump. What else is new? And drug kingpin El Chapo has been sentenced to life, plus 30 years, just to make sure, in prison. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Social media alive and ablaze. You can uh, access us through our Facebook and Twitter pages. That's where you'll find the podcast or the commentary, too. Go back to where you came from. The fallout continues. Interesting watching a, uh, um, an interview with uh, Kellyanne Conway, White House advisor, uh, in front of a press scrum outside the White House. And a reporter asked her uh, 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 in regard to the, uh, the four, uh, I guess, progressive Democratic women that were uh, the squad, as they call them, that uh, are gaining all the headlines in the uh, Democratic Party. Um, I, I, I tweeted out, go back where you came from, basically. I'm, uh, I'm of course, giving you the short-form version of it. And, uh, and, and basically, the, the reporter asked, well, where, where should they go back to, considering that they're all Americans? And uh, she kind of snapped at that point. And uh, her response to the reporter was, what's your ethnicity? And you could just see the whole, everybody in the press scrum who had their heads down immediately. What? Did she actually just say that? And then when she saw the reaction, you know, immediately said that, I believe, well, my background is Irish and Italian. What's yours? It's like, well, I'm not sure that qualifies the question, to which the reporter said, um, you know, that's irrelevant. His, his, the reporter's ethnicity is irrelevant to the question. Uh, so uh, clearly uh, the heat is being felt and... Um, I don't know, as a mother, or sorry, as a son of an immigrant uh, who came here from Scotland, Scotland, uh, and was told when she arrived here with a very thick accent, go back to where you came from. And I'm sure any immigrant, uh, and there's plenty of them in this city, uh, know of the exact same thing. I don't know, as soon as the president starts saying that, we have to really question where we are uh, going. And that's that's got nothing to do with politics. Uh, all right, let's move on. Uh, speaking of politics, uh, you know, it's sort of, uh, uh, it, it looked like nothing could go wrong for Prime Minister Trudeau in his government until uh, roughly the SNC-Lavalin, Jody Wilson-Raybould affair, and then everything seemed to go south. Uh, there was some twink, uh, uh, chinks in the army before that, but uh, it, it seemed to be SNC-Lavalin that, uh, th- that really got people's attention and the whole Jody uh, Wilson-Raybould uh, old ordeal. Uh, since then, things have been sort of flip-flopping back and forth, uh, and, and many have said that this is still too close to call, uh, as we are still, uh, you know, quite a ways out from a federal election coming up in the fall, October 21st. According to a new Ipsos poll, a majority of Canadians want change at Parliament Hill, with 37% of respondents saying they would vote Conservatives. Let's see what the latest is. Bring in Sean Simpson, Vice President of Ipsos, and is with us now. Sean, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Great to be here. Is this still too close to call, Sean? Well, I mean, uh, considering yeah. we're so far out, I guess it is. But you know, yeah. looking looking at at how close this is, let, let's talk about it from that standpoint. Yeah. I, well, campaigns really do matter. So you know, to say it's over is is absolutely wrong. Um, but to say it's a tie, I think, is is equally wrong. It looks like the Tories have an advantage. Um, we're polling essentially the same results as we had last month. We're in a bit of a holding pattern. 
and that is showing the Conservatives at 37% of the vote nationally, the Liberals at 31%, and the NDP at uh, at 18%. So it's a... a you know, a significant lead uh, for the Conservative Party, uh, definitely not insurmountable uh, for the Liberals. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the campaign will matter. But I suspect that we'll, we'll be in this holding pattern until roughly Labor Day, when, when people really start paying attention to politics and the parties ramp up their campaigns and advertising. How has perception changed since the SNC-Lavalin affair? We remember when this broke, and it seemed to be in the headlines for uh, for weeks, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Prime Minister took a bit of a tumble there. Uh, has he rebounded back from that? And, and what's happened with these polls since then? Yeah, well, there, there has been, been some rebound. I think at the, the worst possible time for the Liberals, the Tories were up by about 10 or 11 points. Um, now the, the, uh, conserv- sorry, the Conservatives were up by 10 or 11 points. Now the Conservatives are up by about 6 points. So there has been a rebound, but it stopped. It stalled. And now really since uh, last month, June, now into July, um, the Conservatives still have that six-point lead. Um, so the bad news for the Liberals is that they didn't continue to rebound now that SNC-Lavalin is in the rearview mirror. We're not hearing about the story every day, and we're not learning anything new about it. And so that's why I think we are, we are as I say, in a holding pattern, just waiting for something else to happen. <laughs> is this about uh, the Conservatives gaining power or the Liberals losing? Oh, it's about the Liberals losing, uh, I think. You know, these wounds are self-inflicted. I think Andrew Scheer is still a relatively uh, unknown quantity to uh, to a lot of people uh, and will likely stay that way until until prime time, you know, after after Labor Day. Uh, but, uh, you know, interesting to know that despite being a, a rather unknown quantity, uh, he has the lead, a slight lead, four points over the, the current prime minister in the proportion of Canadians who think he would actually make the best prime minister. What does that uh, so say? That, well, that's troubling for, for, for Trudeau. It means that uh, he's lost uh, confidence of the public. Um, yeah, at one point, his approval ratings were in the 60s, and now they're in the 30s. Um, that which he was uh, elected for, you know, the message, his style, is now the thing that hurts him uh, the most. Uh, in, in so far as I think some people are looking around and saying, you know, is he more than that? We need a prime minister who's, who's got ideas and solid on, on policy and not just wearing funky socks. <laughs> Does this say that Andrew uh, Scheer is starting to resonate? Is he, because many have said nobody knows anything about this guy. They're letting uh, the uh, the liberals paint the narrative of who he is and, and what the party's all about. Is he, is he, is he making a dent? Is he resonating? Yeah, I, you know, I don't really get that that sense um, because I, I think uh, you know the the, the the conservative lead is partly due to uh, the fact that more and more people are looking towards the Green Party uh, and that that is is eroding support uh, for for the Liberals. Um, and uh, you know, the Conservatives, you know, despite all the troubles the Liberals are having, aren't aren't pushing that thirty nine forty percent. Yes, they're in the driver's seat, but I, I don't think that Andrew Scheer, yet anyway, uh, and maybe it will happen, maybe it won't, but I don't think he's necessarily seen as an advantage for the party. He may not be an anchor either. I think it's just a little bit too early. People haven't 
yet maybe made up their mind uh, about him. The Liberals, of course, are trying to help people do that uh, in a way that is uh, uh, unfavorable for uh, for Andrew Scheer. But he's got some work to do, I think, to, um, uh, to make a, a positive impression on people still. What about the Doug Ford factor? Yeah, that's an interesting factor. Uh, you know, the... the He's been having troubles, right? His his approval rating was, I think, as low as thirty percent uh, here here in Ontario. Now that was, you know, one or two months ago. Now, um, the his struggles could act as an anchor on the Tory brand uh, here in Ontario. Um, you know, the other thing is that Ontarians often like to elect um, a federal leader who is of the opposite party of the provincial leader or, or vice versa. It's sort of that, that, that great balancing act that we right. have here in Ontario. And so that could work against Andrew Scheer and the, and the Conservatives as well. Notwithstanding, or regardless of that, we still have a slight Conservative lead in the province of Ontario. And I think if, if the Conservatives can pick up seats in the 905 region in, in, in uh, southwestern Ontario, uh, the Liberals will be hard-pressed to find where they can make gains They'll pick up some in, in Quebec, but it's not clear where else they can gain seats. You talked about uh, the green vote on the left and how that could slip the or split the liberal vote. Uh, we've seen many times heading up to elections that people are are, are sampling and, and say, yeah yeah I'm going to do that I'm going and then when it comes to crunch time uh, they end up. Uh, going back to what they feel is tried and true. Do you see supports for the Greens, which are certainly, I mean, at this point, they're ahead of the NDP uh, in, in your poll. Uh, could could this support wane? What are the chances of this support waning as we get more into, uh, you know, the meat and potatoes of, of what this policy and platform is all about? Yeah, well, we have the Green parties ahead in, in some regions in, 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 in B.C. I think, you know, what, what's happening is that recent electoral victories uh, in, uh, in British Columbia, of course, the seat in Guelph, uh, in PEI, their official opposition, uh, that is all, I think, legitimized a Green Party vote. And people are thinking, well, it's no longer just a, a wasted vote, no longer protest vote. Now, there's still some element of that. So when you see some polls happen in the double digits, you know, I, I'm looking at that a little bit uh, with some skepticism because I don't know whether or not those people will actually show up and vote. They, they have the softest support and are supported by demographics who are less likely to show up and vote, like younger people, for example. The other thing that might hurt the Green Party is that a strong Green Party uh, is, is the most likely thing to put Andrew Scheer in the 24 Sussex Drive because they will steal support from the Liberals and the NDP. Yeah. And if there's three parties on the on the progressive side splitting the vote and one party on the right side consolidating their vote, it's going to be a cakewalk for the Tories. What surprises you most about this set of numbers, Sean? Well, what surprises me most uh, is that the, the um, Liberals are only ahead in one part of the country. Uh, they're only ahead in the province of, of Quebec, uh, and they've got a strong lead, a double-digit lead uh, in Quebec, uh, you know, despite the snc Lamelin issue. But, of course, Quebecers may look at that as the prime minister defending uh, an iconic uh, Quebec company. So they, it might have actually played well in Quebec. But the liberal strategy can't simply be focused on, on Quebec. There, there are only about a dozen seats for them to pick up from the NDP there who are, are going to get crushed. Uh, they'll lose almost every seat, if not all of them, in, in Quebec. The Liberals really need to figure out how they're going to pick up seats um, in other places, uh, like uh, like Ontario, of course, which is very uh, seat-rich, and in places like the interior of British Columbia. Will the SNC-Lavalin scandal, Jody Wilson-Raybould, is that done? Is that over? Does that come back to haunt uh, oh, the Prime Minister man. prior to the election? 
I don't think that's over. I bet you there's some things still yet to learn from that, uh, or or at least new ways of, of spinning that story. I suspect that uh, the parties, the Conservatives and, and others, are keeping their powder dry uh, in the summer and will we'll use whatever else they have in reserve when people are paying attention when it matters the most, which is in September and October when we're in the height of the campaign period. What does it say, uh, I, I'm looking at who would make the best prime minister, obviously you've got Sheer at 36, uh, Trudeau at 32, May at 17, and then uh, uh, Jagmeet Singh at 13%. What does it say when the Green leader is positioning so high? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's definitely trouble for uh, for the NDP. Uh, I mean, Jagmeet Singh has uh, really, I think, struggled to, to resonate with people Beyond, I think those those core, you know, diehard uh, NDP supporters, uh, you know, that the Liberals love that uh, normally, but with a strong uh, uh, Green Party leader in Elizabeth May, that actually is going to hurt the Liberals significantly. I think what's happening is that there's a lot of. Uh, uh, disenchanted liberal voters who are saying, well, I, I, you know, I just can't support the prime minister anymore. I certainly don't want to support Andrew Shia. You know, Jagmeet Singh is not inspiring me. But there's one other person that I know, because she's been around a, a long time, and that's Elizabeth May. And I think she's got a lot of respect among, among Canadians. And I think now, uh, given a lack of what people deem as being viable alternatives, uh, they're starting to park their vote with the NDP. How do you how do you explain uh, the interest in the Greens over the NDP? Is is a Green message different than a left leaning or socialist message? Uh, I, I don't think it's really policy related. I think most people don't really know what Green Party policies are uh, beyond. When will they have to come out with that? When when will the Green Party have to be held to account? Because right oh. now they're kind of enjoying a ride. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in 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 uh, September and October, and I think the leaders' debates are, are going to be important uh, for uh, Elizabeth May to show that she's not a one uh, you know one trick pony. That that they've got ideas and 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 uh, viable policies on all of the major issues that are are keeping uh, Canadians uh, up at night. So if she can do that, I think that uh, you know she'll outflank the NDP and and, uh, and draw some support from the Liberals. But ultimately, um, I think there's going to be some strategic voting in this election campaign, and that strategic voting is going to be to pick the party uh, for people who want to stop the Conservatives, and more likely than not, that's going to be the Liberals. Uh, the Liberals are using uh, Doug Ford a lot in in, in uh, combating Andrew Scheer. Does that message resonate? Uh, how powerful is that? Could Doug Ford derail this election for Andrew Scheer? Well, I, I think Doug Ford's going to going to try to try to play nice. You know, if the federal Tories want him to, to to be involved, then then he will. If they if they say you know just cool you just for a little bit, he'll probably uh, he'll probably participate in that uh, agenda as well. Um, I, I think uh, you know if he continues to put to to poll poorly in Ontario, uh, that will likely. Um, Cause some people, particularly in the 905 uh, region of the of the GTA, uh, to to second guess uh, their support for the for the Conservative Party. So we might just see him lay low for a couple of months, which he probably needs to do anyway, given low support of Ontario. 
Uh, you know, it, it's funny because ahead of elections, many will say uh, they voted this way because they wanted change. They wanted change. They wanted change. And then in other elections, you know what? People uh, will, will look at what they have. They maybe not be very happy with it, but they'll say, at least I know what I got and uh, I'm going to stay the same. What what shifts a, 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 an, electric from, an electric from one side to the other? Uh, what's the difference between uh, we want change and no, we don't want change. We like yeah. everything to stay the same. Yeah. Well, I, I think it, it is the, looking at the alternative and, and agreeing as an electorate on who that alternative is. Because in our, in our multi-party system, if you don't agree on who that agent of change is and you just split all the votes, the incumbent will win again. Um, but if, if there seems to be a consensus on, on which leader, which party is best to deliver on that change, that's when, when you'll see it. And, you know, we saw it in Ontario, and this is why the Liberals won all throughout the 2000s and, and early early 2010s, is because yeah. they were looking at um, at uh, Tim Hudak, looking at John Tory, and they made some gaps and some policy mistakes, and they no longer became a viable alternative. And even though satisfaction with, with um, Mr. McGinty or, and Ms. Uh, Wynne were low, they still managed to win when, you know, all the odds were suggesting that it was it was time for a change. And how odd is it and how odd is it, Sean, that now by the time Ontarians are ready to have change, it's Doug Ford they put in as premier and now are, uh, well, as far as the polls say, are cranky about it. Yeah, well, (laughs) perhaps they should have pulled the trigger earlier. Well, well, with a different a different leader. Yeah, I mean, it was. I, I think you know, it's odd that they had that they stayed the same for so long, and then no, no, we're going to change, and ended up with something on the extreme opposite. Yeah, people can say they 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 want change, and that Doug Ford. I mean, he really is quite quite a different person. That that has definitely changed. But you know, the Liberals were in party for for fifteen years. I suspect the Tories could have put up almost anybody, and as long as they, you know, really didn't step in it, they they you know, just inertia would have. But many them. thought that lo- the election before that, Sean. Yeah, uh, well, it, it, that 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 had been four years earlier, right? Yeah, so yeah. It's only been eleven years. I mean, the the, the, the yep. Tories screwed it up multiple times, right? Mm. Sean Simpson has been with us, Vice President Ipsos. According to an Ipsos poll, a majority of Canadians want change at Parliament Hill. Sean, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Good afternoon. It is 107. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Playwright Will Erskine in the house. 24 degrees outside. More on that a little later on in the show. Uh, and feel free to jump into the show. We'd love to have you. Head first, face first, butt first, belly flop, cannonball. We don't care. Uh, it starts at the website. You can send us a note there via email, Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. And don't forget social media. A lot of action on social media uh, in regard to, uh, we, we published earlier on, and 
And majority of Canadians want change in Ottawa. Asked you that question. Lots of response. Feel free to go on to Facebook and Twitter and you can participate in that. It's also where you will find, uh, you also find the podcast edition of the commentary. Feel free to weigh in on that. Uh, talking about the fallout of uh, the president's, U.S. president's tweet. Uh, go back to where you came from, which we are going to talk about now, oddly enough. Uh this uh, last night, the House of U.S. House of uh, Representatives voted to condemn the tweets by U.S. President. Uh, some, uh, I guess, there's about four uh, uh, Republican members that spoke out against. The rest supported uh, the president and uh, and such. Uh, over and above the politics behind all of this, um, is it is it just where we want to be and, and and what the language we want to hear? Uh, coming out of our leaders. Uh, you can imagine the fallout at the White House as the rest of the staff have to sort of explain what it was um, that the president said, which, you know, let's ask ourselves that question. Um, how many times we have to ask uh, a leader for, for, uh, for clarity, uh, for a message to be decoded? Uh, it's amazing how much time people spend trying to figure out what it is the actual what it is the actually the president is trying to say at any given time it's a lot is left up to interpretation so uh this happened a few days ago obviously the fallout uh and and still lots of people considering everybody at one time or another in north america was an immigrant uh or their ancestors were i mean you know this this statement resonates for me personally because my mother emigrated from uh scotland when she was a kid in the 40s and when she got here uh because she had a really thick accent people told her to go back to where she came from so much so that she didn't want to finish school and her mother said then you're going to work and spent the rest of her life working in a factory so this sort of stuff resonates with Canadians, whether you're just off the boat or not, I think. Same thing with Americans. Um, perhaps less so, but mm, I don't know. Uh, anyway, Kellyanne Conway, White House advisor, out in a press scrum uh, discussing this yesterday, and a reporter simply asks her, where are these four uh, uh, progressive Democrats to go that are all American when the president tells them to go back to where they came from. Here is the exchange between uh, reporter Anthony Feinberg and White House advisor Kellyanne Conway yesterday. Can I following up on, on the previous question, if the president was not telling uh, these uh, these four congresswomen to return to their supposed countries of origin, to which countries was he referring? What's your ethnicity? Uh, why is that relevant to this no, conversation? No, because I'm asking you a question. My, my ancestors my, are my, from my, Ireland and Italy. Kelly, my, my own ethnicity is not relevant to the question I'm asking. No, no, it is. Because asking you're asking you, about, I, he said originally. He no, said originally from. No, I'm, I, am, I am asking you. And you, you know everything which, he has said which, since and to have a full so are you, conversation. So are you saying that the president was telling uh, the Palestinian the president's already commented to go on back that. to the middle to go back to the occupied territory. The, president, was the president's already commented telling, on that, and he said a lot about well, this since, yes no since that question. one tweet. Was no, he, he's put out a lot of tweets, and he made himself available to all of but you he yesterday. Ha, he has not. No, just to the pool. Yes, he does, does, he's tired. He, we, a lot of us are sick and tired of this country, of America coming last to people who swore an oath of office. Sick and tired of our military 
being denigrated. Sick and tired of the Customs and Border Patrol people, the uh, protection people I was with, who are overwhelmingly Hispanic, by the way, in McAllen, Texas. Sick and tired of them I, I being. No, you don't understand because you didn't go. Well, being criticized, being doxxed I'm, I'm, by a bunch I, of Hollywood D-listers like who have nothing else question, to do but sit on their asses on Twitter all day and try to dox referring. brave men and women who are diving into the Rio Grande to save people who are drowning, who are taking other people's babies into custody and diapering them and feeding them and looking the other way while people are running across with drugs. That's going on. To which countries was the president referring? To which countries? How confident are you? And then there's a long pause, and um, it goes on from there. Uh, let's bring in Jason Mollica, professor, lecturer, sorry, professor, uh, professorial lecturer, uh, School of Communication, American University. And is he on the line with us now? We've got him. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Jason. Much appreciated. Oh, no problem. Hey, if you start off with Bruce and Radio Nowhere, you can call me anytime. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so, uh, what what do you say, or what does it say? when Kellyanne Conway's response is, what's your ethnicity? Well, the way that she said it, and then, of course, she kind of went on Twitter after that to say she was trying to clarify herself. The way she asked the reporter that question was very combative. You could just hear it in her voice. I don't care. Look, I've been on both sides in PR and the media, and when you hear a question like that, when when you're asking the question and someone asks you back, what country are you from? It's not. It wasn't asked in just jest. It was asked in a defensive manner. So I, she speaks for the president. So clearly the Trump administration obviously continues to not feel that they did anything wrong when it came to the statements from the president, not only on Twitter, but then obviously uh, in front of the White House the other day as well. Do they really feel that way, considering how agitated she was? Because uh, it was obvious that this was getting under her skin. Does this is this a sign of the frustration that that these people must be feeling trying to defend him? Well, it could be, but I think we've also seen in many stretches with this with this White House here is that the people that work in the White House or work for the president work with him don't have a problem publicly defending him. If they feel some sort of moral code not to defend him, they certainly throw that out the window when they go in front of, they go on social media or they, or they end up going uh, to speak with the media. So from Kellyanne Conway's perspective, I, I don't think I've seen anything from her that says that she is going to think twice about what the president says and all of a sudden have a moral compass. I think she's going to go, at least from experience, go you know lock stock and barrel with what the president says and defend him uh you know defend him to the to the hill uh, this is also the same woman who went on meet the press here on NBC and you know uh, spewed out the quote alternative facts so clearly you know she is part of the and I hate to say a part of the issue with uh, what is going on in Washington, at least with the Trump administration. Uh, Is she or are they getting tired of trying to clarify what he says? It seems every time the president says something that's right on the line, uh, it's always left to interpretation. I I can't remember another president where we've had to ask several people how to interpret what he said. Are they getting tired of speaking for him? You know, I don't get a feeling that they're getting tired of speaking for him. I think what's happening now is it's become so, it seems like there's one thing said by the president and then it's just, it just continues to sort of 
snowball down the mountain. And it's not meant in a way, it's not accidental. The president knows what he's saying. He's not only trying to get out a, a rise out of people, he's saying it deliberately. It's, you know, he, he may come back and say, oh, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Well, then you, if you don't, then you don't say something like that. Um, and I think from whether it's Kellyanne Conway or whomever is going to speak for the president, I, I think in some way they feel, they absolutely feel the same way that the president does. For Kellyanne Conway to then say, oh, I have Irish and Italian uh, in my, you know, my, my family's Irish and Italian, and they came from, uh, from my perspective, I'm the same. I have family that came over on, to Ellis Island from, mm-hmm. from Ireland, and they came over from Italy. I will not be speaking in front of uh, the media saying that I think people need to go back to their countries. I don't think that because my family came from immigrants. So for someone like Kellyanne Conway to say and kind of defend the president, if she really felt that strongly and she had sort of an ethical compass or a moral compass, I think she would have, you know, stayed away from commenting or even in many ways resigned. Um, uh, Kellyanne Conway is, is, is you said an interesting point. You said that the president is trying to get a rise out of people. Would people in the White House be tired of that? Let's govern. Let's get a job done. It seems we're not doing that. We're just trying to get a rise out of people. And then in the amongst of all that, we're trying to do business. Right. I, you know, I, I mean, I, I, just, I, I, I just look to any professional office where there's professional people in there doing a professional job. And then there's some twit that just keeps trying to derail everything. Like at what well, point, at what point do, you, do we say, wow, th- like we're taking one step forward, two steps back here. Right. And you, you mentioned it this way, too. If you had, you're putting together your show and every week it was just saying, like, you know what? I want to have five statements in here that just drive people crazy so the lines heat up and, yeah. and they, you don't have a break at all. Uh, that would eventually probably get in producers' ways, you know, the station's way and saying, we need to have a radio show. We can't just have, you know, uh, statements going out there just to get a rise out of people. I'm sure there are people in this White House that are, were looking to work there and to not only advance their career, but also hopefully advance an agenda that could help this country. I, but right now, all we see are a great number of the people in this administration right now, and a great many people that support this administration that go hand-in-hand hand with what the president says, and in many ways what Kellyanne Conway says. I mean, even uh, Eric Trump, his son, went on Fox and Friends in the United States this morning and basically you know, agreed with his father. And I don't find any shock to that at all and it shouldn't be a shock to anyone that he's agreeing with his uh, with his father but um he you know he even went as far to say 95 percent of americans agree that his father uh with his father's statements and you know that's the part of the equation here that's really getting i think as people hear these things it just the the groundswell for what is going on i mean this has just become the united states in many ways has become a reality show and mm. it should be too surprising with a reality person in the white house but the american people and many people that voted voted for him and even though hillary clinton had the you know the numbers you know president trump had the you know the electoral college so right. I, I think in many ways i think there are people in the white house that are probably not going along with what's being said but their voice is squelched by the the largesse of the sort of the Trump umbrella that kind of 
covers everything else over. We hear so much about the base and how all of this is to inflame the base, and, and as long as he has that, uh, he'll be victorious next election. But what about those people who... Uh, voted for change, who vote, you know, we're tired of listening to green eggs and ham being read and, and, and all the filibustering and, 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 and politics that were going nowhere. So they brought in Donald Trump for change. They brought Donald Trump in to disrupt, bull in a china chop, all of this. And, and mo- a lot of this doesn't have to do with politics. Most of it has to do with personality. At what point do you become, if you voted for him, at what point do you become disappointed because... Although you may agree with his policies, he's just doing everything he can to shoot himself in the foot by, as, right. you, as you said, trying to get a rise out of people. Right. At and what I, point do you say, I, hey, I didn't vote for this. I voted for, I, I voted for the breakup of the establishment, but this is just bizarre. Yeah, I think in many ways it, it'll, be, it'll be interesting as we move closer to 2020. And obviously we're now in July, we're getting close to those dog days of summer and we're getting closer and closer now to... You know, I would think in this country, obviously, the field of Democratic candidates will begin to narrow. But from the Republican perspective, I, you're not. See, I don't think you're going to get the uh, a lot of Republicans right now speaking out against the president. We see them all kind of follow in place, especially after these you know tweets. Oh, they're not racist, or they're not, or even if they were supporting you know change in many ways, this is what people, I guess, thought change would look like. Uh, there are still many people, at, and I say this because if you obviously go on Twitter any time that the president says something or any time something involving the president uh, is is discussed, you see a large number of people that will show their support or they have the MAGA in their um, in their bios and they're tweeting that out and saying how much they support him. I do think it's going to be intriguing to see just how many Republicans actually say, you know what, we're tired. And there are Republicans out there that are tired of this, but it's going to be at the risk of having the rest of the Republican Party, or should I say the Trump Republican Party, um, be, you know, kind of outing them and saying, you know what, they're not, they're, they're losers, they're people that don't support the president, they'll be shamed down and be threatened with no support, etc. And I think that's why a lot of these uh, other Republicans don't speak up enough because it's a risk that they won't either win their elections or if they, you know, if they end up not or if they do support the president, they may only win because they have the support of the Trump back of the Trump White House. So uh, it's a very slippery slope for Republicans, sadly, because they're without Trump's backing, they feel like they can't uh, they can't win. Uh, when this all first started, meaning uh, the election and then the inauguration and such, um, you, you know, many talked about the, the events and, or, or the things that Donald Trump would say, and that would cripple any previous leader with just one of these incidents, let alone a whole series of them. That being said, go back to where you came from. You brought up a very valid point that I identified with. My mother was an immigrant, heard the same sort of lines when she came over from the old country. Uh, mm-hmm. Does this resonate? Does, you know, everything else seems to, you know, Teflon Don, it just slips right off. Going back to where you came from, does that resonate not only with the people he's directing it to, but others who have an ancestry that, that would be sensitive to that? Which would be everybody, I mean, when I, you think, have the age of the country. Absolutely. I mean, just think about it. I mean, like you said, your your ancestors went, you know, went, I think you said, 
went through uh, went to get to Canada. Yep. And there are plenty of people that have, obviously, and not that you wouldn't know this, but I mean, there are plenty of people that fleed uh, World War Two and and the Nazi invasion and went into Canada to be safe from uh, persecution or even concentration camps or just war in general. Um, and there are plenty of people that ended up, you know, moving to this country post-war just to get away from communism or even move and come to this country to have a better life. To hear someone, especially the leader of the United States, the president, say, go back to where you came from, I, that to me is, it, to, I guess it's, it would be odd to say baffling because we've been baffled time and time again from what this president has been saying. But even hearing that, when he tweeted it, and then hearing it again being reiterated by him and his actual voice, if I'm someone that wasn't originally from this country, if I had just come here and I, I hear that, I, I, I'd wonder, would I be better off going somewhere else? And I don't say that to say they should or people should go back. I'm saying it as how, how does it make you feel that thinking that you're coming to a country, whether it be Canada or the United States, and feel like I can have a fresh start here, and you have a leader telling you to go back, or, you know, we don't want you here, it definitely makes people feel as if they're not valued or they're just numbers. They're not people. And frankly, I think in many ways it goes back to the history of our country in, in the United States where, you know, African-Americans were made to feel like they weren't part of this country. Then women couldn't vote. They were supposed to be, you know, the homemakers. Well, now women make up uh, a very strong part of the United States as far as uh, leaders, etc. And African Americans do as well, but so do other ethnic groups. So to have a leader, let alone the President of the United States, tell, you know, immigrants or even people that were born here that tells them, tell them to go back to where they came is just baffling, but it's also, it's, it's very, it's pathetic. So does this resonate? No matter what your political stripe is, does this resonate this time? I think it's been resonating more than I think even the White House expected in some ways. Not that they're shocked, but I think the it's been now we have there's it's been a slow I, I hate to say it, but it's been a slow cycle. We don't hear as much about the Russia investigation. We don't hear much about um, other little things. I say little, but mm -hmm. other little things that have gotten in the way of the president. This has really been a lot of the cycle, a lot of the talk, and frankly, now that his son was on this morning it just continues to uh cycle through the through social media and also within the media the traditional media itself so i think unless something pops up here that's going to get people off of this message it's going to continue to fester we've hit midweek and people are still talking about something that happened a few days ago that's pretty rare because usually what happens is something happens with the trump white house and then something else pops up, yeah. and it, everyone forgets about that. So I think in this case, we've had a good three days now of this in the cycle. And if it continues, I think you're going to start to, I'm sure pollsters are out there already, or, or you know, they're going to be finding out what people think. And you're going to see it go along party lines. But I'm also pretty certain that there are going to be a number of people that weren't happy regardless of being uh, Republican or Democrat. Professor Jason Mullica has been with us, School of Communication, American University. Jason, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, Scott, thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Drug kingpin El Chapo has been sentenced to life plus 30 years in prison. 
Uh, and I guess this is no surprise. This has going up, been going on for an awfully long time, and now this appears to be the final uh, nail in the coffin. Malcolm Beeth is with us, author of The Last Narco, a book about the hunt for, of course, uh, Joaquim Guzman, and, the free, and, of course, is a freelance journalist and with us now. Malcolm, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Uh, surprised at where we are now, just a matter of time before it, it all happened. Uh, not at all surprised. It, it was a matter of time, and there was really no doubt in anyone's mind that he'd be sentenced to life. Go back and talk a little bit about his story. Some may know some you know, similar things about the, the Mexican cartels through shows like Narcos and what have you. Talk about what his involvement was when he became prominent in this cartel. Sure. He was, uh, Champa was born, uh, well, Joaquin Guzman was born in 1957 in uh, a small little hamlet in the mountains of northwestern Mexico. Uh, he, legend has it, and it's been since confirmed by family members, he used to sell oranges and tomatoes up, you know, to any villagers who would buy them. Uh, what happened is through connections, and is still believed to be a family member, he got a job as um, uh, basically as a low-level uh, distributor, a logistics manager for marijuana um, uh, movement in that area, and very quickly moved up. You know, this would be in his late teens, early twenties. Was moved up rapidly up the ladder, but also was promoted rapidly up the ladder. Uh, he earned a nickname at that time, which was El Rapido, which is the, the fast one, uh, which um, because of his ability to move drugs just very fast. His other nickname, Chapo, uh, means short and stocky. Uh, he's five foot six and uh, a few hundred, a couple hundred pounds, I think. So uh, it's also a body type that is uh, common to that part of the world. Then, uh, let's see, uh, he was he first came on the U.S. radar, the U.S. authorities' radar, in the late 1980s. Uh, and then early 90s, he became one of the what, were the, what are called capos, which is a drug lord uh, controlling a, certain, a large portion of territory in Mexico. Right. He was arrested in 1993 in connection to a shootout, which left uh, the cardinal... Uh, sorry, the Archbishop of Guadalajara, a city in Mexico, uh, killed that cardinal. Chapo did not kill him, but he was arrested for being involved in that, in the in the for, in the in the melee. Uh, and he spent eight years in jail, uh, only to escape uh, in 2001 uh, through a laundry cart hmm. uh, in a maximum from a maximum security prison in Mexico. That's sort of where the legend of Chapo began. How, how, you know, we hear a lot of uh, the Mexican cartel, the Sinaloa, the, the Sinaloa uh, cartel uh, through the times of the late 60s, 70s and the marijuana trade. Talk about that transition from marijuana to cocaine and meth and everything else that, that Chapo was involved in. Sure. Uh, I mean, originally marijuana was seen as, you know, marijuana was a very, you know, became very popular in the 60s and 70s in the U.S., and it was a clear cash crop. It was pretty easy to grow in Mexico, to have huge plantations. Uh, it was technically illegal, but no one cared. Uh, the military looked the other way. The police looked the other way. And, and the government's attitude was quite openly, well, if they're buying it up north, we'll, we'll sell it. Who cares? 
it's free markets. Um, what happened in the 80s is the cocaine boom, uh, it was late 70s, early 80s, um, the cocaine boom in the United States uh, basically changed the game a little bit in that the Colombian producers of cocaine uh, had to pass it through Mexico, which became more violent, and the U.S. on the recipient side became more violent as well. Of course, that sparked uh, you know, the U.S. crackdown, the U.S. war on drugs. Mm-hmm. And for, since then, I would say that the Mexican cartels, basically they made an arrangement with the Colombians that they would distribute, they would traffic the cocaine from Mexico onward to the United States, thus minimizing the risk for Colombian cartels. But the Mexicans have basically, Mexican cartels have basically been adapting ever since. If meth becomes popular, uh, if they see signs that meth is becoming more popular in certain states, they will cre- you'll see meth labs popping up in parallel states in Mexico. So they're basically watching the demand and meeting it and often being ahead of the curve. Uh, when, when veterans started coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan around 2006, 2007, there's, there's now testimony, but you could see it at the time, that the cartels recognized that there would be a need for opiates. Um, you wow. Know, this, they're ahead of, the <laughs> veterans traditionally, historically, have turned to some serious, you know, strong drugs, and often it's heroin uh, or, or illegal opiates. And they see the market and they adapt to that. That's incredible. What about the fight to change extradition laws? And I believe this went back to the 70s that, that finally made it possible for Americans to, to get people like this. Yes, well, in fact, in 2001, uh, Chapo Guzman escaped on January 19th, 2001. On January 21st, the Supreme Court in Mexico, Mexico was due to vote in favor of extraditing Mexican criminals. Uh, to the United States before there was no extradition on their part. So Chapo knew what was coming ahead and escaped due to that. Since in the last, I mean, when I was working in Mexico and when I was researching my book, the Calderon administration was, uh, was, I mean, hundreds of extraditions a year. uh, And they really beefed that up. It has gone down, but the relationship continues. And to this day, I mean, Chapo's trial was interesting because it's always been the biggest fear of a Latin American drug, tra- drug lord to be extradited to the United States. But Chapo was trying to prove that wrong by standing trial, by actually you know, facing the court. He's the biggest drug lord to ever actually try and mount a defense. He was trying to prove that actually the justice, the justice system can be manipulated. And we heard that today in his comments. Uh, he said, you know, the United States is corrupt and the criminal justice system is is no good, which, you know, that appeals to a lot of uh, a lot of people who just think, you know, yes, we know there are problems with our criminal justice system, but it's not a good enough defense. Uh, considering the, the corruption there uh, at, at all levels of government, it would appear, how difficult was it to get that extradition law passed? I think actually the extradition law uh, itself, once they, once the U.S. and Mexico agreed it was in both their interests, uh, it was not that hard. Uh, because these are certain crimes that clearly are in the best interest. You know, prosecuting these crimes are in the best interest of both countries. Uh, you can argue 
you know, I, I love to debate about the, you know, the, the effectiveness of the drug war, and I will happily argue with a judge or a DEA official about the legality of, you know, a bit of marijuana or a kid, you know, the criminality of a kid who sells a bit of pot to someone, to an adult. But uh, when it comes to Chapo Guzman, you know, if you're trafficking vast quantities of drugs, it doesn't even matter if the corruption is there, you're guilty. Uh, the corruption you have to go go after uh, afterwards. Did the passing of this extradition treaty and, and these changes that happened, did that slow the cartels at all? Did that change, or, or even what has happened today? Does that change anything? I, it doesn't, there's no on the, there's no on the right immediate effect. You don't, and it's certainly not one that you can see. Um, the extradition treaty did change the cartels. Um, you saw more, more, more of them seeking hideouts or uh, putting their money, especially in other countries, which effectively makes it easier to catch them. If Chapo Guzman, one of Chapo Guzman's great traits was uh, he managed to stay in the hills of Sinaloa and uh, near his home most of the time. He did not travel that much. Uh, had he traveled like other drug lords were traveling to other countries, he would have been caught much earlier. Uh, you know, that protection bubble runs out pretty quickly, even if you have a lot of money, if you're traveling throughout South America. What's Sinaloa like now? Is it still just as involved, just differently? Uh, in terms of the state, uh, in terms of production? Yes. Yes, it is. Trump Guzman's sons are believed to be running, a couple of his sons are believed to be running the cartel. Uh, that would be a loose... I. I my understanding is that's a loose interpretation of running the cartels. One of the key things to remember about drug trafficking, and you asked whether his trial or his sentencing would change anything, is that the drugs continue to flow. When there's the demand, the drugs are going to get here somehow. Right. Uh, and what tends to happen when a, when a leader falls, especially one of such magnitude as Chapel, there's going to be a lot of fighting, and there has been in the last year, there's been right. a lot of bloodshed and a lot of chaos, and eventually some group decides to organize and say, look, this is too profitable. We can't let this go. And because it's the money that drives it, you know, it's, and, and it's too much money uh, to... So, yes, in our short answer, the, the drugs, you know, it, Sinaloa will still be involved. Who, you know, who takes over uh, still remains... Violence in that area on the increase as a power struggle ensues. Yes, absolutely. And, and you see this all the time. You see this. What, what the authorities did very well with Chapo, I think, is go after, effectively use, try and do a domino effect. In the, in the, we all know about Chapo, but when I was researching my book, uh, you know, I just found that they were puncturing the holes in the hierarchy one after another and basically making this organization, a business organization, incapable of functioning. And that's, again, that's going to be their best bet going forward. Make these people distrust each other so much that they can't, you know, you and I, we can't do business if we all, if we all fear each other. We certainly know the history on how that whole region came together and all of these different operators formed this cartel. Is it now too dangerous to have a cartel? Is it better for them to split up and each go separate ways and just do this under the radar? 
I think um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I think uh, I think the government would like. I, I know the Mexican government. Part of their plan was to they hoped that they would break down the cartels into effectively gangs. You know, small gangs moving some drugs here and there. That is basically what we have in the United States and what exists in Europe. Uh, these are not, you know, gangs do not corrupt the state. They do not corrupt the entire uh, judicial system. Right. Uh, courts can deal with drugs. Police can deal with a few gangs. So uh, that, that may be the future, you know. Um, uh, I, there's going to be violence, uh, you know, w- whether... Whether you're monitoring it or not, I'm not. I'm, you know, I'm not following Sinaloa that closely right now. But there, there will be, you know, spikes of violence. Uh, but I think over the long term, I, I think that's a that's a good possibility. What will prison be like for El Chapo? Uh, it'll be lonely. Uh, he will be in the Colorado Supermax uh, in Florence, Colorado, with some very high-profile other prisoners. I think. Uh, the shoe bomber, I can't remember, Richard Reed right. was there. Uh, one of uh, one of his mortal enemies, I believe, is there. I can't remember the name. Uh, one of Chapo's mortal enemies. Uh, he'll have 23 hours a day uh, solitary with a small little slit to see the sky. Uh, and I, I believe that there are little things like they're not allowed to shake hands with other prisoners, minimal contact. Uh, what they call finger handshakes, you know, just sort of mm. high there, touch each other for fear of passing something on. And he'll be able to see his lawyer, uh, his lawyers, and I think closest relatives. We've often heard how members of the cartel will just run this in prison. Um, is is he involved or is he out now? Is this it? It's done. I, th- I think he's out now. I, I think simply for the for the, the need to communicate uh, all the time would require him to, you know, he, he can't communicate to his uh, henchmen uh, directly right now. Uh, is he able to send a message once in a while to a top, you know, one of his top cronies? Probably, but that, yeah, I'm sure it doesn't make, you know, he, do, he doesn't have a hands-on uh, any hands-on control of the operation. And does he have any power uh, with the rest in the cartel, knowing that this guy's never getting out? So what do they care? Or I guess I guess yeah, I think divisions I, run I deeper than that. I think I, I, I'm one to believe that I, I, his mythology, his, his uh, you know, the, the myth behind him will still carry some weight uh, in Sinaloa and maybe along the border. Uh, you'll see... And we have seen banners put up, you know, in his name, mentioning him. Uh, there's definitely going to be some some of that sort of loyalty from the foot soldiers. Uh, but I think it's it, it'll fade quickly as their money starts coming from someone else. Um, uh, is he safe in prison? Uh, yes, I think he is. I, I think there's no uh, no real concern for his safety. Nor do I think he really has a chance of escaping. Um, you know, <laughs> anyone is corruptible in my mind, and and uh, the warden of that prison doesn't doesn't earn all that much money. But I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> other other prisoners I'm sure have tried to bribe their way out or do something, and no one has. So I think uh, I think it's safe to say, you know, he's he's he'll be safe, and and he won't try and escape.
how where in the timeline of all of this in 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 this cartel tree per se where does pablo escobar fit in with el chapo chapo sorry uh, I believe that they knew each other, but they did not work together. Uh, Chapo was uh, working with the Cali cartel, actually, at that time, which is, uh, was north of, Bogot- north of Medellin, which is right. where Pablo Escobar was based. Um, in terms of high ranking, I mean, people do like to compare Chapo to Pablo Escobar. I think... Uh, you know, you're comparing one drug trafficking, one murderous drug mm-hmm. trafficker to another. I don't think there, I, I think Chapo Guzman learned something from Pablo Escobar in that uh, don't try and become a member of society, uh, you know, high society. Ch- uh, Pablo Escobar wanted to be a congressman. Right. You yeah, know, he yeah, wanted to yeah. be accepted. And Chapo Guzman never tried that. Uh and it's only in recent years that he appears to have tried to, uh, to, to use the sort of, you know, the U.S. government is corrupt line. Uh, he didn't seem to value that political line uh, when he was actually doing his work. Does the capture, uh, does this uh, conviction and sentencing and such, does this change the way the U.S. approaches this problem? Uh, I don't think so. I think uh, I think largely it will continue because, in large part, for lack of other options. Uh, you know, I used to be against the. I, I was largely against the our approach to the drug war. But you know, when you see what's going on, you you have to think of the possibilities, and uh, and the way we do it. Uh, you know, largely through law enforcement interdiction, uh, and it, it's not. So is the war on drugs? Is the war on drugs a failure then? I don't think so. I, I think, oh, look, I mean, it's a failure that we keep doing, so I don't yeah. think it's, uh, it's completely failed. But, you know, look, stopping the drug flow into this country uh, 100% has failed. We know that. So you continue treating addiction. You have to treat the root causes of the drug use. And you do have to keep uh, my policy in terms of my thinking in terms of the, the kingpin strategy, which is going after cartel leaders, is that that helps the countries where they operate. You know, it's not just the Chapo sent drugs into this country and, you know, to quote the DEA, poisoned Americans. It's that he literally did, that they killed, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of Mexicans have died in the last 10 years. Uh, You know, this is, that's, that's abominable. You can't have that. Uh, So that has, that has to be the priority always in these things is trying to create some sort of stability malcolm b has been with us author of the last narco a book about the hunt for uh joaquin guzman el chapo uh, also a freelance journalist and uh him of course uh chapo uh now sentenced to uh life behind bars malcolm fascinating fascinating topic thanks so much for the insight much appreciated thank you the Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.